You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, seeks to improve the quality of healthcare in America. We want to make healthcare better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or have any comments or concerns, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to your note. On today's episode of Inside Healthcare, we talk with a behavioral health expert whose innovative ideas and apps focus on efficient and effective patient outcomes. And I'll tell you about NCQA's first Health Innovation Summit, a live four-day event starting on Halloween. But first, Eric Greminger is CEO and co-founder of ERP Health and a nationally recognized leader in the behavioral health space. The mission of his company, ERP Health, is to save and transform lives through individualizing behavioral health care. Educated and trained at Drexel University near Philadelphia, he is an ICADC, an internationally certified alcohol and drug counselor. He lectures around the country and has written books on the topics of recovery and the neurobiology of addiction. Eric is a board member for Prevention Plus, an organization focused on promoting healthy, safe, and drug-free lifestyles in the state of New Jersey. And he sits on the Advisory Council of Fentanyl Awareness Day, a federally recognized day dedicated to raising awareness of the dangers of fentanyl. Since 2014, Eric has trained behavioral health care professionals around the country on how to use patient-reported outcome measures to personalize clinical curriculums and inform policy and procedure. And as you'll hear, his own story drives him to smooth the journey for anyone seeking a way out of addiction. I'm a person in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder. I recently uh, celebrated 12 years, but um, between the years of 2005 and 2010, I had gone to three separate addiction treatment centers, um, not having success from any of them. So uh, essentially, I was able to get into recovery uh, in 2010 through grace and the help of a lot of really great people. Um, my recovery journey took me back to school. I became a clinician myself and I felt compelled to kind of look back on my own struggles with addiction and figure out what went wrong. Why didn't treatment work? And essentially what I was able to determine was, uh, while they were great clinicians who were treating me, nobody individualized the process for me. Like there wasn't a personalized plan in place. And, and I think that would have really helped me. I was also struggling with very bad depression at that time. And I would go through a 28 day treatment center and it would go undetected. Well, if you, if you can't detect it, you can't treat it. Um, and then finally, when I would leave the center after the 28 day stay, nobody would follow up with me to say, Hey, how are you doing? Are you still um, adhering to the treatment protocols that we went over things like this. So basically I wanted to solve for some of the issues that I had dealt with. Uh, so I created a, 
a version of ERP Health in paper and pen format uh, in, in 2014, where I would actually go to local treatment centers here in the Philadelphia area, um, and we would engage the patients with paper and pen PHQ-9, GAD-7, so these, um, these assessments, these paper and pen assessments, we would engage them. The clinicians would collect all the assessments at the end of the day, fax them to me, so we're going back a bit now. Um, I would research the findings, put together a statistical analysis by hand of where their communities needed the most help, send the results back to them to integrate that information into care to ensure progress. That three-phase system, engage, research, progress, that's what ERP Health stands for. That's the ERP part of it. 2018, I met my partner. He's a programmer by trade, and he saw my passion for helping people. But he was like, look, if you're doing this by hand, maybe you could help hundreds of people. If we turn this into a technology, we could really help millions of people. Um, and that's what we did. So our evolution as a company, I think, really sets us apart. We didn't just see a market opportunity jump in and you know measure outcomes. There's really been this first-person perspective that has led to a very strategic development, research and development process that lives on to this day. And I think that really sets us apart. At NCQA, we talk about lots of different uh, illnesses and lots of different uh, medical conditions that require treatment and how treatment can be more successful, especially how even large health systems can find ways of streamlining patients and individualizing treatment back and forth. So what you're talking about, even though it's uh, focused on behavioral health, um, uh, just if you could just comment on how those ideas can be expanded or reinterpreted for uh, people dealing with other kinds of chronic illnesses. Well, yeah, and I you, we have to we have to elevate the narrative to integration between behavioral health and physical health. One in three people who have a chronic illness also have a behavioral health condition. And that behavioral health condition is exacerbating the physical symptoms. So it's very much connected to separate and parse out the two is, um, is something that we have to kind of take a look at and recontextualize like this individual is a whole person. And if you're struggling with diabetes and you have your also depression and that depression goes untreated, the costs associated with that are, are three X, you know, three to five X so measuring and managing the behavioral health condition concurrently with the physical health condition is going to benefit uh, the patient, but also the system as a whole. So as a personal trainer and a life coach and a counselor, just reaching out uh, for your career, reaching out to, you can't help yourself, but help people, right? Uh, what's the guiding philosophy that you have when it comes to behavioral health and working in general with patients to improve their lives? Well, it's interesting. So I don't, I don't have time to do the personal training anymore, but just the fact that I, I really started um, my career as a personal trainer. And when you do personal training, individualizing uh, plans is a must. Everybody comes in there with different physical goals, different, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to gain weight. I want to gain muscle. So you, you kind of are forced to develop what in, 
and, and the research will call an N of one mentality where we can't just look at a whole group of people and say, this is what's going to work best. You'll, you'll hear uh, cookie cutter type programs. You're, you truly have to get nuanced within the individual's um, background, their goals. And I think that's really guided my clinical work and um, the way that we've built out our outcome tracking tool at ERP Health. It's, you know, every single person deserves to have individualized care plans that meet their specific needs and then to have the interventions that were created being met, the efficacy of those interventions being measured on a consistent enough basis where it'll lead to quality improvement and quality assurance. That, that should be the byproduct because of our measurement. So um, that philosophy is everybody's a unique individual and they should be treated as such. It really stemmed from my personal training days. Okay. I'm going to jump down and ask more about ERP health because, uh, you know, uh, I want to talk more specifically for you to talk about what, uh, ERP health mm -hmm. actually does. So you have tools that are being developed as a means of, uh, tracking patients through their treatment. So how does ERP health turn around and help deliver patient reported data, which is also another thing to ask you about is the value of patient reported data compared to not in replace of, but compared uh -huh. to when uh, a doctor or whoever is treating them um, uh, provides data. But first talk about ERP health and the tools that you're developing. Sure. So ERP Health is an enterprise-grade outcome tracking platform. We leverage the power of technology to personalize patient care, promote health equity, but also position providers for value-based contracting um, moving forward. So just to kind of give you a from a journey perspective, what it would look like. So we work with primary care physicians. So let's say you go in for a routine visit to your primary care physician. Um, in the lobby, you'd be presented with a tablet. On that tablet, the ERP Health tablet, you're taking assessments, depression, anxiety, uh, drinking. So how much are you drinking? Um, problematic drinking through a, an assessment called the audit any drug use. So essentially what we're doing in that process is screening for mental health vital signs while you're there for your physical. If through that assessment process, it's noticed that you've been drinking a little more than usual and it's starting to become problematic, your primary care physician right then and there can do it from that screening, a brief intervention and a referral to treatment. So moving along the patient journey, you enter into a specialty care addiction treatment center. The ERP health technology there collects a baseline of your trauma history, depression, anxiety, all of these what are called comorbidities that factor into the primary diagnosis in a really big way. Uh, with trauma, it's almost a 90% comorbidity with uh, substance use disorder. So very important that we're noticing these things, but it also sets a benchmark within our technology. So as the uh, person is going through treatment, we're continuing to measure, and this is a process called measurement-based care. So we're measuring whether or not the treatment protocols are being effective. An example would be as a clinician, if I determine that 
for you, cognitive behavioral therapy will be a really good starting place based on the, the data that I'm seeing uh, from your assessments. All right, week over week, I'm continuing to measure to see whether or not that intervention, that CBT intervention is working. In other words, are your anxiety symptoms reducing? Are your depression symptoms reducing? I want to know that in real time, David. You know, I don't want to wait until it's your, your day to leave to find out that you haven't really progressed uh, from the treatment. So that's, that's how um, our platform shows up during treatment. And then when the individual discharges, this is a very important component. Uh, when the individual discharges, they enroll into a continued care application that we have. So this is a technology that engages the individual post-treatment. Anytime that you're talking about chronic disorders, event, uh, you have to see it through the lens of management, not cure. So to send somebody to a 28-day treatment center and think, thank goodness they completed this treatment center, it's really a, a flawed uh, viewpoint. And that's why on average, uh, it's between two to five treatment episodes for addiction before somebody actually gets it. And we could talk in a little bit how that relates to healthcare expenditures and value-based care, but just staying on course, when the individual leaves, they log into this app. So it's engaging. We're putting motivational materials. We're really, you know, trying to keep them engaged so that we could continue to screen and assess, reassess whether or not they're still stable. So, you know, whatever their recovery goals are, are they still achieving them? That could be MAT, that could be, um, you know, a whole range, obviously, of uh, pathways to recovery, but also quality of life, right? Just general risk factors that we could notice early, report back to the treatment center so that they could do an intervention before this ends up as an emergency room visit. So with ERP, what we wanted to look at was that whole continuum from the minute they go and get screened at the primary care physician all the way up until um, one year, three year, five year marks, where we know that could, we could get somebody into remission, right? With chronic illnesses, but how do we, how are we staying in contact with those individuals? So that's what ERP health does. It's meant to be that infrastructure, that technological infrastructure that bridges the gap all the way across the patient journey. There is a difficulty there with staying in touch with them because they're, for various reasons, people want to hide their addictions. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a point in their recovery that's difficult to overcome or not to overcome, just difficult for them to manage along the way. So it's, it's one thing that I was thinking about when we're talking about in this, uh, in this instance, um, being able to, to have patient oriented, you know, uh, assessments, patients actually reporting on themselves. It's hard for them to self-report sometimes if they're trying to hide where they are with their recovery. Uh, and you know, it's, um, so, so how do you, uh, maybe compensate for that? Or do you have, um, remote care that you're able to do, uh, in order to monitor where they are with their, uh, recovery, with their health? There's the option for remote care. So we have, you know, networks where a provider can be triggered. It could be a telehealth visit. That's, that's one branch of our business. 
ultimately, though, I think the beauty of our system compared to just, let's say, a technology that picks up only at the end of care or only does screening is since this, the patient has been interacting with this technology from day one, while they were in treatment, they're kind of learning. It's, it's almost acting as a heuristic where patient reported outcome measured, completed outside of clinical care, but discussed within a day or two with the clinician. So the clinician is helping to reconcile some of those, some of that confusion while they're in treatment. And if we're doing it the right way, there will be a momentum post-treatment where the patient has learned, the, uh, has been given uh, the ability or an understanding to properly self-assess. So it, it really does, it's, it can't just be 100% self-directed, but it can't be all clinician-directed either. It has to be a collaboration between the two where the individual is completing the information, but the clinician is leveraging the information to coach them to, to better identify um, circumstances in their life that are leading to or triggering uh, return to use, if that's the case, or whatever it might be. So it's, um, it's really a balance. There's a need to make sure that patients who are dealing with substance abuse uh, take ownership of their situation. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that part of the difficulty that people have with taking ownership and, you know, self-ownership, because this patient uh, assessment, when they're assessing them themselves and reporting uh, data based on their own experiences, what they're going on, you know, today, I feel like this. And today I'm, I'm doing this. Um, part of the problem with that is so much stigma, social stigma that people feel. Um, and I, even when it's not really there, even when no people are all around them supporting them, they still feel some kind of stigma or shame, which is a, a terrible, terrible thing uh, for people to feel. Um, and that can contribute to them uh, not wanting to self-report or not taking ownership. Uh, what what's a one way uh, that that you uh, deal with patients that you talk to them uh, and help and have counselors help to train people to self-assess when they have those kinds of feelings that are maybe blocking them? So we do trainings um, just just for clarity's sake. We're a third-party technology. Our core product collects data from patients, securely stores that data, and comprehensively reports upon it. Now, when we do our trainings, though, we factor in how they could, um, number one, articulate the, the necessity, why we're doing this, and how this could benefit to us. We do some stigma training within that. Uh, it's a major barrier. It's something as a society, I think, that we have to take a look at. Um, interestingly, just an, as an aside, so in the beginning of this podcast, I shared my personal story. Uh, I've had really smart people who really care about me pull me aside and say, Erica, you know, you're doing pretty well in, in your business. And I don't know if you necessarily need to tell the world that story. And I, I don't agree. I think we have to, I think normalizing it through uh, telling our stories is probably 
one of the most powerful ways that we could reduce stigma. We've had some, um, you know, athletes and celebrities that's helping. It's becoming a little bit more and more normalized, but as far as just kind of coaching somebody that it is okay to be in recovery, that this is a disease as recognized by NIDA, that this, you know, if somebody is not embarrassed to have diabetes, they shouldn't be embarrassed to have, um, addiction just based on the brain areas that are impacted. And there's so many similarities, but it's a remnant of what was, and it's, it's systemic to a certain degree. And as we were all well aware, it's very difficult to get to the root of some of that stuff. So that, you know, I, what I try to do personally is to share my own story and hopefully make people comfortable to share theirs. And uh, I'll say congratulations on your continued recovery which I, I didn't say right off the bat at, at the beginning, but especially in, in, in these terms of being able to face it uh, and, and to um, help to inspire people to be able to face their own recovery and to deal with it, then congratulations for that. Um, and so certainly much. NCQA backs you up as far as um, recognizing AOD, alcohol and other drug abuse or dependence as a, medical condition we have uh, more than one measure in our HEDIS measure group that helps to track aod and their treatment and assessments um and i'll put links in that for um for our listeners there'll be links for uh for that with the podcast listing so uh let me ask you about value-based care which we you mentioned before um and also in terms of health equity so um so on the website, one of your goals deals with, and you're trying to enhance patient outcomes while at the same time reducing cost of care to not have cookie cutter kind of healthcare, but that the patient comes in and is able to really articulate what's going on with them with the help of whoever the medical staff happens to be. And then based on that, try to figure out, well, what's the outcome that we want to get to? How do we get there? How do you basically enhance patient's outcomes uh, and have the focus on the patient, but at the same time, reduce the cost of care. Yeah. So I always, when, it, when I hear the term value, the, that part of value-based care, I immediately think of um, Michael Porter's definition of value, which is value is patient health outcomes achieved. So if we're looking at it as an equation, that's the numerator, denominator, the cost to achieve those outcomes. Uh, so with this in mind, one of the things that our technology looks to do is, as I mentioned, measurement-based care, identify early whether or not a person is responding to treatment so that we can modify care accordingly to get this individual back on track. In a value-based model, I'll use an example um, that we've seen in uh, the, the substance use disorder space and then kind of back into how our system can help with that. So um, a, an insurance company, commercial insurance company contracted with uh, a local Philadelphia treatment center. And what they, what they did was they provided a bundled case rate. So they gave them a favorable case rate for 28 days without having to do a concurrent review. So calling and, and trying to get more time for the individual patient, none of that will give you all the days up front. but if they come back within 90 days, 
you're responsible for the bill, right? So a value-based case rate uh, model. So if that's, if you're taking on that risk as an organization, if that person comes back within 90 days, you're going to have to foot that whole bill. You're going to be hyper-focused on whether or not they're getting good quality care, right? The outcomes are improving. And this individual is in a position where they're not going to have to come back within 90 days. If we focus on patient health outcomes, the cost will ultimately be reduced. As I mentioned, two to five, two is the median time, the median, five is the, the mean, the average that a person goes to, again, just use an addiction treatment as the model, goes to an addiction treatment center. So if we take that five times as the average, think of the cost associated with that. Now, if we buy into this value-based model, we really focus on improving the outcomes, reducing the recidivism rates, right? Initially because of the contracting, but ultimately the patient's going to get the best care. Improving those outcomes, that, that uh, numerator, will ultimately reduce the cost of care because helping people is good for business. I, I like to say that is, you know, uh, but it's, it's really the best way, in my opinion, to align all of the stakeholders in behavioral health. So it's good for the payer. It's good for the provider and it's good for the patient. Providers aren't positioned for that though right now. And that's where we're really being brought in uh, to, to set in place the structure for these contracts, because if you think about it, a fee-for-service model is actually uh, quite the opposite. So if you're getting paid every time that person comes back to treatment, you're not really incentivized. I'm not saying this is deliberate or anything, but if we're just looking at it pure economic, purely economically, the incentive is not necessarily there to keep them from coming back to treatment. So I'm so happy that we're finally at this. We've reached this inflection point uh, past escape velocity with value-based contracting and it's exploding in the behavioral health space. So we're really, um, we're really able to add value to these organizations, which is, which is great. Uh, so talk about health equity. Um, and if we see this kind of value-based model, these kinds of solutions, through a health equity lens, uh, how very briefly, how do you see all of this helping to close gaps in health equity? Well, I, I, there's, there's a few ways I could answer that. The one is we've built it into our system and has to be really pushed and almost mandated measuring social determinants of health right from the beginning before a person enters treatment, because we might not realize that there are certain impediments to care that this person has that we won't ever notice just as clinicians, unless we're measuring it. It's very easy to say, well, this person, they didn't get it because they just weren't ready. Well, maybe they just didn't have a ride, right? So we have to measure, does this person have reliable transportation? So that would be one component to the health equity conversation. The second is, and this is what we've seen. So we're working with, um, with unions and we're working with some self-funded plans. So the payers have a provider network, right? Now, if somebody goes, uh, is looking for treatment and 
they go to the, you know, their, their provider network. How do they know which one to choose? So what we're able to offer is a way for, I guess you could consider it payer oversight of their provider network where we could notice how well do African-American females 18 to 35 do at this treatment center? How well do males age 20 to 40, uh, 20 to 40 with alcohol use disorder, Caucasian, do at this treatment center? So it isn't necessarily that one center is better than another. It just might be that one center has certain treatment protocols that are more uh, that have better efficacy with certain demographics. So making sure that we have equitable processes in place to properly refer within our own networks. And we should have our finger on the pulse of that. And I think that's a powerful way to ensure that we're identifying both clinically appropriate recovery resources and culturally appropriate recovery resources. And having that right from the beginning as part of our referral model. Okay, let me ask you one more question. There's something in technology that we call XAAS. Okay, it's something, 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 fill in the blank, AAS as a service, something, something as a service, which uh, one way of saying it would mean that um, if you happen to do something for somebody as a favor, as a help, as a chore, uh, instead of doing it that way, you would say, I'm doing this as a service, which means it's part of what I do. It's something that I just generally, it's not something I happen to do. It's something I generally do. I do as, and I provide. Um, uh, so there's different examples. There's examples uh, using computer technology and examples in all different kinds of business. And it's just a way of seeing things that you're really saying that what I'm doing for you is not incidental. It's actually part of a service. It's part of what we do on your website. I found the phrase success as a form of service. Uh, and I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So um, if you could tell us, uh, tell us about that as a philosophy, success being provided as a form of service uh, and how does it work for you? How does it work for your company and how can it guide others to better health? Sure. So this, this philosophy has really come to me. I've had the privilege over the years of working with thousands of, of people in recovery and just, and one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people just aren't, they aren't playing as at a level that they could be playing at. Right. And they can say it's humility or whatever it might be. But what I tried to help them to see is when you're, trying to be your best self physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and you're really trying to be your best self, you inspire others who are looking on, uh, especially those in recovery to say, wow, if Eric could do it, maybe I could do it. Right? And, and trying to kind of um, create a, a rising tide effect by striving for your goals. Of course, do it ethically, do it you know, you know, mindfully of others, but ultimately you pursuing the best version of yourself, we'll call it success, is a form of service because it inspires others to want to do the same. ERP Health CEO and co-founder Eric Greminger 
speaking the truth on the way forward from addiction to recovery. As we mentioned in the interview, some NCQA HEDIS measures speak to alcohol or other drug dependencies. One measure, Initiation and Engagement of Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse or Dependence Treatment, helps hospitals and other providers assess people 13 years of age or older who began addiction treatment within 14 days of diagnosis. It also looks at how many of those people had two or more additional abuse or dependence services within a month of their first visit. We'll put links to the measure in this episode's online description. Time now for our Fast Facts segment. Each week we offer bits of knowledge that we hope will pique your curiosity and result in some good conversations. Now, as we slide into September, we begin Childhood Obesity Awareness Month. As the CDC notes, childhood obesity can result in physical ailments, including type 2 diabetes and breathing problems. Alongside these can be behavioral health issues, including low self-esteem, anxiety, and depression. So here's some important stats from the CDC on the prevalence of childhood obesity in the U.S. I'll put the link in the episode description for you. From 2017 through 2020, for children and adolescents 2 to 19 years of age, nearly 1 in 5 were obese. That's about 14.7 million kids and teens. Numbers were highest among 12 to 19-year-olds. Numbers were around 25% for Hispanic and non-Hispanic black children, 16.6% for non-Hispanic white children, and 9% for non-Hispanic Asian children. A Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report with study results from 2011 to 2014 reveal possible gaps in health equity. In that same age range of 2 to 19 years, the prevalence of obesity was 8 to 9 percentage points higher among low- and middle-income groups than it was in the highest-income group, and obesity numbers went down as head-of-household's level of education went up. For links to NCQA's HEDIS measures on obesity in adults and kids, go to our website, ncqa.org, and search HEDIS H-E-D-I-S, obesity. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a summit as the top level, the apex, the highest peak you can reach. Well, with that in mind, NCQA would like to welcome you to our first annual Health Innovation Summit, a true meeting of the minds. In Washington, D.C., from October 31st through November 3rd, healthcare leaders and innovators from all over will gather to discuss quality healthcare. With thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education, and an exhibit hall filled with visionaries, this summit is one that you will want to attend. Or maybe you want to be a speaker, or grab a booth in the exhibit hall. Maybe you'd even like to be a sponsor. Well, to learn about these options and more, visit ncqasummit.com, the NCQA Health Innovation Summit. This is quality. Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we come now to you for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime with your comments. Well, if you're coming up empty, here's our question of the week. Have you ever used a health-related experience in your life as inspiration for your work? Well, if you have, tell us all about it. And if you have any comment or suggestion, an idea for a guest on the show, Maybe you'd like to be that guest. Well, just email us and let us know. 
communications at ncqa.org. And we hope to hear from you soon. Well, that about wraps up episode 87 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. Though this episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. Share a show, spread the word, help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, go ahead and connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show that can be shared with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>